Hello, welcome to GEC Important Talks. This is our podcast show brought to you by the team at Global Education Connection. We're a nonprofit whose mission is to provide educational materials and art supplies to kids around the world that have been affected by conflict and natural disaster. As part of this podcast series, we want to talk about important issues around the world related to children's human rights and their education. So for today's episode, we've got myself, Carter Beck, and Catherine Slaughterbeck. And Harmony Wang. Wonderful. So today we're going to be the, the three speakers on this podcast show. The topic of today's show is going to be the current state of college in the United States. And that's going to be from our three different and unique perspectives. So Catherine, go ahead and take it away. So I feel like the first thing that we should talk about, just because of how big of an issue is, and because of the ruling that's probably going to come out tomorrow, is student loans. I don't know about you guys, but by the time I'm done with college, I'm going to have a crippling amount of student loan debt. <laughs> so I feel like we should talk about, in part, uh, it's due to the rising cost of college, but has the quality of college improved with the cost? Very, very controversial subject. So we'll go, we'll go ahead and start with that one, of course. Yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> might as well start off with a bang. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's—I don't think anyone is able to refute that the there's been a a very very fast rate of in, inflation in terms of the 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 tuition prices for college, and that's going to be community college, um, private four year, public four year, and then graduate um, doctorate school as well. Um, and I don't think anyone is really able to refute that. And so, I mean, Catherine, in preparation for this podcast, I pulled some statistics from educationdata.org. Um, they were able to say that the cost of tuition at a public four-year institution increased 31.4% from 2010 to 2020. Adjusting for currency inflation, college tuition has increased 747% since 1963. Um, so just some... I mean, some numbers that that are able we're able to to see just the the actual increase in these uh, the prices for college tuition, um, and then the article also breaks down some possible reasons for the tuition increases um, because I mean as we've seen like uh, the U.S. dollar has seen inflation from since 1963 um, with where these statistics were were pulled from, but I think the question is has the Inflation that we've seen with prices and tuition, is that consistent with an increase in quality? Is that in, uh, consistent with an increase in um, your return on your investment? And I think that's something that a lot of students today are frustrated with because that's not something that like our parents um, or, or, or neighbors, friends that went to school in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s uh, had to experience just that, that massive 700% increase in the cost of tuition and what they're able to receive from that investment. What are your thoughts? I oh, Did you want to go, Harmony? You can go ahead. Okay. I, I definitely think it's it's a really hard thing to say, like, oh, am I actually, like, getting my money's worth out of this until you're done? Because, mm -hmm. like, until I'm done with college, how am I going to be able to look back and be like, okay, this stuff has actually helped me prepare for a career? Logically, I know some of it has to, but also, I feel like the, another rising issue that kind of ties into this is that like a bachelor's degree is the bare minimum to get a job anymore. Just to like get any kind of job that isn't like retail or working at a restaurant, you need a bachelor's degree. But they're not 
paying you what you deserve to be paid for all the money and, and time and effort you've put into getting that degree. So it, it's, I don't know how to say this necessarily, but it's like, it, like, is college really worth that insane price when you're not getting that return value after, but you also don't know if you're going to get that return value after until you already done it. I think we have to first define what the return value is. So on one hand, there's the traditional return value, which is um, your growth in knowledge and in experience during college. And as um, some universities are becoming increasingly more prestigious, such as um, the top universities, there's also the value in names. Um, going down the corporate route or for especially like law school or master's, um, your undergrad um, is something that they actually they look at a lot, especially for um, like Citibank and a lot of the large corporations. I know some of them only take um, applicants from certain universities. So that itself may be a certain criteria that students will really fret over when um trying to select colleges and perhaps even taking out more loans because they can't afford the price of these top universities. Uh, Harmony, was that something that you thought you and your family put a lot of time into considering when you were starting your college college career? Did you put a lot of thought into selecting the university based off of the employers that are going to be um, looking for alumni from your specific school? Partially, especially as an international student, um, I may be coming at it from a different perspective because if I were to work globally, um, the name of the university would have a large impact on these global employers. So beyond the scope of um, United States, a lot of the countries in Asia and Europe, they don't recognize some of the state schools. Mm -hmm. Or So down that path, it would potentially be harder or take more effort for you to prove um, your skill set as opposed if you went to a school with a really good name internationally. I think it's your experiences as um, domestic uh, students. I mean, my, myself, I went, I went to Penn State. Um, so, I mean, Penn State is, is a, a, a well, um, a, a, a school that a lot of a lot of people in the United States know. They they know the name. It's it's been been around for for a long time. Um, but I I didn't actually go there specifically for the the name name recognition. Um, but actually I went there because of like geographic geographically it was the the closest school closest good school that I was able to to get into. And then also with the 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 ranking that the different um, like colleges within the university have in terms of the quality of education. That was my reasoning for, for picking uh, the school that I went to. Um, but also in the, looking back and I, I know the price of, of tuition has gone up dramatically, but I, I still question uh, is, is it worth the, the price increase? Well, what are we getting out of it? That's worth 747% more um, for, for the price. Um, so, I mean, that's something that, a lot of my my fellow student, like my fellow uh, my, my peers and I, were considering uh, when, especially when it came time for graduation. I I might have been like the only one who was told this growing up, but like for the longest time, everyone told me that where you went to undergrad didn't matter. 
that like as long as you were planning on going to like law school or grad school after that it didn't matter where you went to undergrad because that would that would be more important so i didn't necessarily take name recognition into account when i was applying to schools granted i also applied to penn state but i didn't pick like i didn't go there um but even then i didn't apply for the name recognition i just applied because it was near my house. <laughs> but, but I think that's also interesting because a lot, um, a lot more students are, are doing undergrad now than they were 40, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So maybe it's just at a point where that is the, as becoming the average, uh, become having a, a bachelor's degree. And so you, that's something that sets you apart is then going to law school, doing, going to med school, graduate school after bachelor, after your bachelor's degree. Yeah. So, awesome! All right, Catherine, what's uh, what's our next uh, next uh, topic? Yeah, I think a big thing we should talk about. Um, I don't know how much Carter can necessarily relate, relate to this is COVID, and how that impacted colleges in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Harmony, I know you are going into your sophomore year, right? I am. So I kind of missed out on the whole college during COVID thing. Do you uh, want to take it away, Catherine? I mean. I can. <laughs> I but started. it's also it's, it's also going to be interesting to to hear like like my my experience is um if I had six or seven classes during a semester maybe one of them was going to be a virtual class um mm-hmm. and and then so Catherine you might you will definitely have a different perspective as going through college during COVID and then Harmony it'll be interesting to get your perspective as well as someone that's attending college post COVID and to see if there's been any changes in uh, like curriculum classes if there's more virtual classes than in person learning so I'm I'm actually I'm really interested to uh, hear your perspectives. I can't say anything to what it was like pre-COVID because uh, my fall <laughs> freshman year was uh, fall 2020. Oh. So, uh, you know, what a wonderful time to be starting college. But the way my school did it was that the professors themselves could pick whether or not to have virtual or in-person classes. So mm-hmm. I got to campus and then found out like half of my classes would be online anyway. So it was like, why did I even bother doing this when I could have stayed home and saved money? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if I necessarily got like a lesser quality of education than I would have had I taken those classes in person. Um, but I also think that's just the nature of how like the, the hybrid learning was working. Like you kind of had to just roll with the punches and get the quality of education that you could. Um, and, and I also don't know if I can, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, Carter, but I, I don't know how my work during COVID would have been impacted if I had been like a junior or a senior doing the harder, more uh, intense classes focused on my major. Mm -hmm. I was a freshman. My entire class schedule was just gen eds. So it was the basic classes that I had to get out of the way that like, yeah, they were Those are the the fluff classes. They were the fluff (laughs) classes. Like, yeah, sure. That's, that was where I did my intro to poli sci course online, but, but still Mm -hmm. the rest was like, my, my English class that I had to take or my science class. So yeah, like it didn't, it didn't like necessarily carry the same weight that like my classes now would, like, I could not mm-hmm. imagine having taken my intense political theory course online. I think I would have probably cried. So it's, it's one of those things where I could have a totally different experience having been someone who enjoyed online learning mm-hmm. had I just been farther up the totem pole, you know? Mm-hmm. 
harmony with with your classes do you have any online classes now um like well i guess now it's going to be during the summer but also during the the spring and the fall did you have online classes that you were doing like concurrently with your in-person learning for the previous year for my first year freshman year all my classes fortunately enough were in person i'm a really hands-on in-person type of learner mm -hmm. but during the summer i think yeah our i think two weeks of our summer course is online and we actually talked about this um with our teacher our professor and other students um for at least me and the other my peers we prefer um in-person teaching because online it's just easier to be distracted mm -hmm. and um i know a lot of students who went through high school and college during covid um a lot of them say how it's not that they learn less, it's just that there's more distractions out there. Um, and sometimes like the learning you get from talking to your peers um, kind of dissipate in the process. Um, but I feel like coming off of COVID, my year benefited from, I guess, Catherine, your cohort's experience because a lot of my professors noted how important mental health is um, within the syllabus, syllabuses syllabi syllabuses <laughs> um, and um yeah a lot of them just place a large emphasis on mental health taking mental health days and um there are of course professors that noted how the standards have dropped during covid and they were going to raise it up again but um on average a lot of the professors seemed more laid back which i really prefer because it feels like you and there's the power dynamic between the professors and the students is kind of reduced. So I feel like by reducing that power dynamic, it's easier to interact and really just see each other as humans. What do you think? Uh, Army, that was a really uh, it, something that that stood out to me with what you just said was your your professors, teachers, instructors they they had and they admitted that standards had dropped. And we we saw this across the country with with primary, secondary, and then and then also with with tertiary education that some scores did drop as a result of COVID, and I don't think there is enough analysis yet as to if it was the um, the, the teachers whether they hadn't been properly prepared for online education because this was really just thrust upon the the whole. The, the whole country is we are shifting to online education and then and then transition to hybrid. And then now it seems like it's going to be mostly in person now. Um, but I thought that was interesting what you said that your teacher said that there has been a drop in the, the, like the, the quality of education or the standards. Um, but I, I can't help, but think the teachers need to also reflect on that is could could not have done a better job of teaching or incorporating um, better better practices into our online courses. So that way standards did not drop. Um, mm -hmm. That that stood out to me with what you just said. So I also feel like, you know, it was a global pandemic, we were all suffering from it. So maybe taking a good long look that maybe the standards necessarily dropping in some areas wasn't necessarily bad. Like, yeah, sure, people were probably preoccupied with not infecting loved ones. They had ones with, you know, pre-existing conditions or who were immunocompromised or if they had children at home. Yeah, sure, they're not going to be doing the same quality of work that they would in a regular world.
Mm-hmm. I feel like the pandemic also really highlighted the education disparities in the countries, mm-hmm. like in areas where it's more difficult for children to um, get to school in terms of transportation or resources at home. COVID just made it a lot harder and just really, I guess, made clear of these difficulties. You might be alluding to the the recent uh, court decision case of affirmative action, if that's going to be playing a part with mm-hmm. uh, if what we saw with COVID um, highlighting the disparities in access to education and quality of education, if 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 that if that made affirmative action if that made affirmative action even more important uh, for 2020, 2021, 2022, while we were in the midst of COVID than it had in previous years. Um, so that might be an interesting, um, that might be an interesting transition, transition into the affirmative action topic. Yeah. So this morning we all woke up to a new ruling on, um, Harvard and North Carolina's case on affirmative action. Carter and Catherine, do you guys want to comment or explain the cases? Catherine, actually, I'm going to defer that to you. You are, are, are <laughs> you you know the most oh, about the, the Supreme Court. Oh gosh, my professors are just sitting back and kicking their feet with joy that I can somewhat talk about the Supreme Court with confidence. Um, so basically, in these two cases, uh, it was Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Um, for Harvard, it was an Asian American student, and for North Carolina, it was white and Asian American students that brought these cases against the university, saying that they were being unfairly discriminated against in the application process because they were not Black, Hispanic, or Native American. And that by this, it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court ruled today that they were right that it, it violated the 14th Amendment and that essentially affirmative action as we knew it is completely gutted. So 40 years worth of precedent of the court itself reaffirming that affirmative action was legal and was right to be used in schools is essentially gone down the drain. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts did, however, make the point to note that it, it's not that schools can't consider race. It's just that it has to be considered in like the students essays like if this if the students take their experiences and like how race impacted them and work that into their personal statements then it's okay to consider but you can't be like when i'm applying to law school it's not like i get to check a box to say i'm white like i did for undergrad so it, it it's a really complex issue that the dissents are going to be very interesting to sit down and read once i have the time to do it that's all i'm gonna say especially yeah, considering that, um, sorry, no. uh, for the longest time, Justice uh, Thomas, he was the only black person on the court. So that essentially made him, that we, I, I don't want how to, how do I say that he was essentially what they used to speak for people of color. That's essentially mm-hmm. what it was. And from my understanding, now that Katanji Brown Jackson is on the bench, uh, they have beef. Because if you did not know this, uh, Justice Thomas is extremely conservative. And he apparently, in his like concurring statement, uh, called out Katanji Brown Jackson for like a dissent that she didn't write. That he like listed a bunch of stuff and was like trying to pull apart an argument that she never actually wrote. So 
it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see the power dynamics on the bench moving forward with that. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> hmm. uh, I I didn't I didn't get a chance to to read his um his opinion um after after the decision was was made public. As someone who's read opinions of his before, you're in for a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did. I I did check the like the White House Twitter page, and I saw that they had not commented, and it had been several hours. So I thought that was that was a little interesting um, that they they were rather quiet. They might just be holding their breath and waiting and focusing on tomorrow because that mm-hmm. is Biden's student loan plan that's being mm-hmm. that's ultimately probably going to get overturned tomorrow, based mm-hmm. on what we saw today. So they might honestly just be waiting to see how that turns out and then make a statement on both. Interesting. Huh. Uh, I mean, I, I guess we, we can ask, I mean, have, 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 um, I personally, I don't recall having, having many conversations about, uh, affirmative action and its role in the college admis- admission process while I was in school. Um, it was just not something that we that we talked about. It didn't seem like it was was an issue. Um, your perceptions, your experience, is that discussed on your schools? Not really. Like, like mm-hmm. I knew it was a thing, but I was like, if, as long as like I had the test scores, I had the grades. As long as I can prove myself, I'll get accepted. I mm-hmm. I don't think any other white student should feel differently. Like, mm-hmm. you're gonna go to college. If you have the grades and the scores for it, I don't think race for white people, like it's not a, a de facto towards us. That That's not how affirmative action worked. So. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Hmm. And um, before this, um, after hearing about it, um, today's case, I actually did a bit of research and um, I looked into my own school for Vanderbilt um, University in Tennessee. And I found it was really interesting in 2013, um, 60% of the student population composition was, um, were white, whereas um, only 30% were people of color, whereas today it's a really even split. So I'm really proud of my university for, um, I guess, reaching that under affirmative action. But with today's, um, with today's ruling, um, the Georgetown Research um, department has done a simulation that found that this na- national um, ruling would actually decrease the um, ethnic diversity in colleges. So that is something that I am a bit scared of um, seeing. I'm looking right now um, on online. I did see that uh, California did ban affirmative action. Um, looks like it was in 1996, California passed a law that overturned um, affirmative affirmative action. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to see what kind of impact that had on um, like public public and private colleges within the state, because um, that's a that's a real case like a case example that we can we can look at and see okay what kind of impact has that had on student populations um since that ban on affirmative action uh, was implemented so i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can find an article about that 
So I think this is going to be a topic that we're going to want to pick up on on a following a following episode, um, being able to look at the impacts of what we've been able to observe since the 1996 ban on implementing uh, or or enforcing affirmative action in, in California schools, and we'll be able to look at that as a, a test for what the the country will be able to probably see from this recent Supreme Court case that was just passed today. Um, I also wanted to refer back to our the article I, I brought up uh, earlier on the show the from educationdata.org. It highlighted some analysis as to why college tuition was increasing. One of the hypothesis, one hypothesis is known as the Bennett hypothesis, and it says the more grant aid a college student and their family get, the more willing they are, the more they are willing to pay for tuition. Subsequently, this allows colleges to set higher rates for tuition. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree with this hypothesis. The reason that I, I, I agree with it is that I think the U.S. the U.S. government. We, they provide grants to to students um, based off of like income, and I think the the government is like they're almost like half in half out. They're not providing the 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 education that like a lot of uh, European countries provide to their students. Um, Harmony, I'm I'm not sure what it's like um, in, in outside of of Europe, but I know that they are much cheaper. Yeah. if not completely free for um for citizens that want to attend university in european countries and so with that the government has gone full in and they are controlling the price whereas and i think in the united states the federal government is only like half in they're only providing some federal grants or federal loans to students and i think that allows colleges to say okay students are definitely going to receive a minimum of ten thousand dollars for example in student loan assistance or student loan student loans or grants and then so they know that they can then increase their prices because students are already getting some assistance so i think that hypothesis makes sense to me what are your thoughts on that I would definitely agree. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think like colleges see it as as a easy way to make more money. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know about at your schools, but something that at least has been talked about at mine, not going to name names, um, but is the possibility that the reason my school gives out so much money in scholarship is because we don't actually have to pay in much it pay as much in tuition as like they tell us we should so like the tuition that they want from us is only like 30,000 but they say it's 50,000 then give you a $20,000 scholarship so it seems cheaper than it actually is to encourage more people to come that seems a little deceitful um yeah but I, I think that might be like, like, that, that might be like a, like a cynical that might be like a cynical point of view which I really don't want to have <laughs> I think that view is completely valid. Like it's one of the screens of capitalism and like the cycle of capitalism, different ways to make more money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a way so, to do that is to make something appear more cheap than it actually is. Yeah. And quickly returning to what you brought up with um, California's 96 ruling. Mm -hmm. um, it's really important to note that that only applied, I think, I believe, um, to public schools, but now with Harvard, um, with this being extended to private schools, what are the implications? 
because the public and private sectors of education functions um, relatively different. So going down this path, there might be larger implications. I think we've got our topic for next week's episode. So <laughs> we'll be able to discuss we'll be able to discuss this in a lot more detail for a full half hour or more. But I think this will definitely be um, a, a great a great topic for next week's show. Definitely, yeah. So, there were some other theories or uh, some other hypothesis uh, some hypothesis hypotheses that uh, that this article <laughs> that, that that this article um, brought up as to why college tuition was rising at such a fast rate. One of them was called the golden ticket fallacy. And that's believing that college, a college degree would result in improved future earnings results uh, in college students doing less in-depth research on the cost of college, including tuition. So I, I think that, Catherine, that speaks to what you mentioned earlier as there's it's going and doing your bat going and obtaining your bachelor's degree is is becoming like a standard and so at that point the the cost of tuition is is really negligible at the point where it's becoming the standard to obtain that bachelor's yeah it's no longer the golden ticket to a better life it's just the bare minimum to mm -hmm. in order to you know put food on the table Absolutely. And I do want to, of course, reference the the author of this article is Melanie Hansen. Um, and it is published on educationdata.org if anyone wants to, to go back and, uh, and and look at this this information. I can always so, link it in the description of the episode, too. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Okay. Fantastic. I have a question for you, actually. You mentioned that you were considering law school. And I was, as a potential student looking into law school as well, I was wondering what are your thoughts about um, law school tuition, law school um, scholarships, and whether or not the prestige of the school you go to matters, and to what extent does it matter? Because I know for Harvard, um, they do not give out any scholarships. I, I think it's definitely scary to think about just looking at the price tags of these these law schools. Like I am looking at a minimum of like fifty thousand dollars a year. And like you said, Harvard doesn't give out scholarships. I haven't done too much in-depth research into the other law schools, but it it's still scary to think about, especially considering, like, even if you make it all the way through law school, there's no guarantee you pass the bar exam. So there's no guarantee that you are able to achieve, you know, the end result of what you just put hundreds of thousands of dollars into. Uh, I also, like... That also like goes into like the experience of law school because from what I know about it, like I, I don't know how much research you've done, but like, it's very competitive. Like you, it's it's not like undergrad where you get a grade based on what you do. It, your grade is compared to everyone else, and you're scaled that way. So you are fighting everyone else in the class for a good grade. So I, I it, you know, battle royale essentially, but college edition. So I, I think it's very scary to imagine going to law school, being extremely prepared to go to law school and putting all this money into it and then competing against people who are somehow better prepared than me and not being able to achieve the, the minimum needed to keep going, even if you are putting your all into it, and putting all your money into it. So I, I, I think that also kind of speaks to the, the greater issues of the education system. So it's, it's very interesting. But also the the you mentioned the prestige of the law school and that's also another thing that's kind of scary because like you mentioned earlier with some people or some companies only looking um 
are hiring people from these elite schools, that's the same for law schools too. So even if you go to law school, there's no guarantee you'll get like a big fancy name job unless you go to Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, all these big name schools that cost you know, like $70,000 a year, that's just not feasible for some people, especially considering, you know, the high LSAT score and how much you have to pay just to take the LSAT. So it's, it's very scary to think about. Uh, and TLDR, very scary. <laughs> Catherine, I wanted to provide a statistic um, just on this on this topic. Um, this is from a Forbes article published March 1st, 2023. Um, it, sh it says that according to data collected by the American Bar Association in 2022, the average annual cost of tuition and fees for a full-time in-state law school for students is going to be $42,823. It also says it's going to be probably about anywhere from $17,000 to $24,000 for on-campus or off-campus living. So I think I just threw up a like little bit in my mouth. So. <laughs> So it looks like for in-state for an in-state school, the average looks like it's going to be close to about sixty thousand dollars a year, and that's that's not even that's not even considering like private Ivy League schools. That's in-state. Yeah, and like I said, the the cost of the bar exam varies from state to state, but you could be looking to up to fifteen hundred dollars just to take this one exam, and that's discounting all of the prep work you need to do for it, all of the money that goes into school, that goes into, like I mentioned earlier, the LSATs over $200 take. Some LSAT prep programs are over $1,000. So how, how much money are you putting into this to potentially not get that return on investment that we talked about earlier? And it's really important to know how many people are being blocked off from the career path of law. Um, especially those coming from um, diverse backgrounds, different social, economic, and racial backgrounds as well. Definitely, yeah. Now, that that made me think that, um, and I looked this up just now, according to the Brookings Institution, published uh, June 5th, 2023, from 2010 to 2021, undergraduate enrollment dropped by 15%. Translating to, to to translating into about two point six million fewer students, um, so that's really interesting. So possibly that increase in that we we've been observing in uh, college tuition prices and then also the competitiveness is is naturally making students more weary of of throwing tens of thousands of dollars at a, a college education um, because the that that inflation in the price has just gone up so dramatically. And so I think that's also made a lot of, a lot of potential students nervous where to the point where they won't even actually go to college. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of recent stressing for just people to go to trade school or, mm -hmm. you know, to, to or community college because the cost of traditional like private or public higher ed education is just so expensive that it's not worth it anymore. Uh, and the, the, the decrease in students, that that's something my college is grappling with. Like, mm. to put it lightly, the, the board of trustees and everyone uh, at my college is campaigning really, really hard to get more people to come because just our numbers have been dropping and dropping and dropping. So to, to be able to witness that and be like, oh, OK, yeah, I see it. That, that's mm -hmm. also a little scary. Um, 
I could provide some insight as to my experience with grad school because I'm currently in a graduate program right now. This program is entirely virtual. It's been different uh, from my undergraduate uh, experience because I graduated before COVID. Majority of my classes were in-person learning, and so transitioning to this completely virtual program has been a—it's been an adjustment. I wouldn't say it's been bad or, or good, but it has been my graduate school experience. Um, I, I can't say as to if if it was better or worse before COVID. Um, but I do like that there are students in this program that are that are all around the country at the moment. So they're able we're able to get a, a very diverse um, uh, pool of opinions from unique perspectives from from students around the country. And so I, I appreciate that aspect of it. Um, although I, I would think that going to law school, I want to do that probably in person. So <laughs> I don't know the way they, they conduct law school. It's very Socratic style. You're just cold called on. So might be better to do it online and then you can just say mm. your connecting connection right. uh, dipped out when you don't want to answer. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll, so we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, today's episode. Um, this has been a very, a very unique discussion. We've been able to hit on a couple different topics within the the general topic of the current state of college in the United States. We were able to talk, we were able to talk about the current increases in tuition inflation, um, our experiences with COVID, plus also options post-college and what some of our, our thoughts are once once like Harmony and Catherine um, finish their their current undergraduate studies, plus also my experience in the current program I'm at where I've been um, after. Um, my bachelor's degree. Um, so again, I just want to thank everyone for for listening and watching today. Catherine Harmony, thank you for your unique um, and valuable insight into this topic. Um, we're going to definitely, I think, follow up next week on talking about affirmative action because we can talk a full episode about that. And I think that's going to be a very interesting show to, to listen to as well. Before we wrap up, I want to bring up that we have our coloring book on Amazon. So this is a book that we're providing to kids around the world that have been affected by conflict and natural disaster. It's a creative way for kids to learn about some different facts about animals. Plus also it provides a creative outlook for these kids. So that way they can draw and forget about any issues that might be going on around them, whether it's a conflict or a natural disaster. So please go onto our, our Amazon page and support this book and support this book. Um, all the proceeds from this go directly towards the, the shipping and the distribution of more of these books to kids around the world that have been affected by conflict and natural disaster. So this is GEC Important Talks. We want to thank you on behalf of the team at Global Education Connection for being a part of what we're doing. Thank you so much, and we will see you again next time. Bye.